Hey everyone, welcome to Emmanuel Fellowship's podcast. This is Pastor Trent, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Fellowship, a church in South Minneapolis that exists to serve our city and to live for God's glory. Thanks for tuning into our podcast. We pray that this message encourages you to follow Jesus and to see his presence and power everywhere in your life. Hey, this week I sat through a church fight. I mean, you know, where both sides are starting to get heated. And all of a sudden, they begin acting like kind of out of character, and somebody has gone ahead and pushed their side and position, and then the other person has gone and they've taken their side of facts, their own information, and said, no, this is the way it is. And it was like, quickly, I started to see things roll out of hand, and all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm like muttering the fruits of the Spirit under my breath in prayer, just kind of like hoping things calm down. And you probably could guess the topic of the conversation. 90s R&B. I mean, isn't that what we debate about nowadays? Isn't that what we fight about? 90s R&B was the heated topic of conversation. Who was, who is the best R&B artist from the 90s? And let's just say it was a lot of fun. (laughs) It definitely sort of got us sidetracked a little bit in the discipleship conversation we were having, but it was a good moment for um, the brothers that were together. So um, if I think of 90s R&B, what it takes me is back to middle school. Um, And it takes me back to what we called activity nights, because I think we were too young to call them dances, right? But in reality, they were dances. I mean, some, some people were playing basketball in the gym. Everyone else was in the other gym dancing to 90s R&B, right? And I don't know if you remember that setting, but like, it was kind of a high-stress environment. Like, that, this is decades before TikTok. It's not like you can rehearse your, your dance moves and then post them later. It's like, no, real time, you've got to show what you got. And so everybody is sort of like, you know, choosing how they're going to work. They're like approaching, angling, you know, like somebody's bringing out the sprinkler, right? Somebody's doing hammer time, like whatever. I don't know what your dance move choice is. Um, but it's such a fun environment. Because people are literally trying to figure out how are they going to approach things and who do they want to dance with. Now, here's a fascinating thing. There's something about this year, I think in light of the last few years, that makes much of what's going on in the church like picking new dance partners. And in some ways, people are wondering, how are we going to approach the music? How are they going to play or dance to this or to that issue. And even if we are sort of sizing up the dance partners, the funny thing is, I think most of us have forgotten that music is playing. Meaning, like, if you think about it, music has a way of shaping the moment, shaping your experience of the environment. But in all of the varying approaches to the music, or to culture, if you will, there has been an an emphasis on how we'll dance rather than an understanding of what's playing and how does that set the moment. Music as it's playing in some ways functions like culture that's all around us. And I think if we're so concerned by our dance moves, we'll perhaps forget that the music is actually influencing quite a bit. And we'll be so concerned with how we're approaching culture rather than how culture is influencing us. And so the question for me this month, as we talk through some of where we're headed as a church, is this. 
Like, what if our understanding of the gospel is more cultural than it is biblical? Like, what if our understanding of the good news is actually more influenced by the environment around us rather than by sound exegesis? Because we want to be a church that's committed to God's word. And even with eyes to see the moment we live in, so we might understand the good news of Jesus even more clearly. And so today what I want to do is kick off our series called Horizon. And I want to talk about one of the markers of the horizon for us. One of sort of the destination, the goal, the win for us as a church. And we call it all of God. So yes, before the Vikings play today, I'm going to tackle all of God. Um, We will talk through everything that you need to know about who God is and what he's like, um, and maybe you'll be there by halftime to watch the game. Um, That's pushing it. Um, But here, I want to introduce you a way of looking at God that I think matters for Christian maturity. All right? So here it is. Let's go to John chapter 14, which Erica read. Our outline today is going to be simple. We're going to look at all of God, some of God, and then relating to God. All of God, some of God, and relating to God. Let's go. Here is John 14, verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have not told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Okay, hold on. Step back for a second and remember that this is one of the biographies of Jesus' life. This is a Jesus biography about who he was and what he did. And John, the writer of this particular biography, has an angle. He has a goal. His whole purpose in writing it is that we might believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And then that by believing, we might find life in his name. So so John really wants us to have faith. He wants us to trust and believe that Jesus is the Son of God the Father. And his whole proposition, if you sort of like take the book and then see some of the themes that run through it, his whole angle is look at the unity, look at the love, look at the joy Look at the incredible connection between God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Out of all the biographies, the Trinity is on display most clearly in John's gospel. He wants to introduce us to Jesus as the Son of the Father. And then the Spirit is the one by whom Jesus is doing all of his work and ministry and the one whom he's going to send to be with us forever. And so Jesus, in this setting and in many others, is connecting up the three persons of God for us to see. He wants us to see all of God. Look at this. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place in my father's house. Now, that could be a big a big flat with a lot of rooms. It could be a huge mansion where everyone has sort of their own place to to lay their head. But most likely, given the language of the New Testament here, what he's getting at is, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's household, in my father's family. In that day, families did not sort of spread out all over the state or all over the country, but they stayed together, spanning generations with the the father and the father's name sort of characterizing and giving an identity to the whole. And so Jesus is saying, I go to prepare a place for you 
in my father's family. That's what he's getting at here. And how's he going to do that? Where is he going to go? Well, if we read through the rest of the book, he's going to the cross. He's going to the cross where he, in many ways, will be a son who's cast aside in order that he might bring sons and daughters in. He's going to the place where he would be judged so that then we could be accepted. He's going to the cross because he had to pay for it all so that we could then be a part of the family. Jesus' goal is not just transactional. It's familial. And so he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if you've been studying the Proverbs over the summer with us, when Jesus says, I'm the way, you should be going like, ding, ding, ding. Okay, Jesus is saying, I'm the path. I, I am the pattern of life. I am the guide and the habit for you to find true life. I am the way. I am the truth. The one who has brought light into darkness. The one who is true for all eternity. The one who has the knowledge that you need to know. The accurate information. I'm the life. The door to abundance, fullness, eternity. But Jesus isn't content on us just saying, hey, here's eternal life. He wants to introduce us to the Father. Now, I don't think Erica read this, but let's keep going into verse 8 quickly. So Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me, verse 6. Verse 7 says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And Philip comes with a question, the obvious question, right? But he says, Lord, show us the Father then, and it will be enough for us. Jesus says to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And the words that I say to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father speaks through me. The Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. What's going on here? Philip comes and he's like, okay, you're right. We want to get to the Father. Like, we've heard about the Father. We've seen you interact with the Father. Like, we've, we've got stories and stories about what God Almighty, this Father, is like. Can we see him? And Jesus is like, wait a second. You haven't caught that I'm here showing him. I'm here making what was invisible visible. But did you catch the way Philip talks about the Father? He says, if we see the Father, it'll be enough. It'll be satisfying. It'll be something we'll be fully content with. We will be complete if we just see and know the Father. Jesus is bringing us to relationship with the one who is fullness itself the one who has everything we need, the one who satisfies us in every way, the one who can bring complete contentment, and the one who, who alone can lead us to life abundant. The Father is the source of these things. And Jesus wants us to know him so much that he came to reveal him. But Jesus is not done yet. All right, here's the end of the passage, verse 15. Truly, true, if you love me, 
you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Here it is, third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit, a helper, a counselor, a comforter. And you have Holy Spirit here being linked to all of these incredible Old Testament names for God. God is the helper of Israel. God is the wonderful counselor. The Spirit is the one who will convict and who will comfort. The Spirit is the one who will lead and guide them into truth and to understanding. You have this beautiful picture of Jesus saying, I'm going, but I'm not leaving you alone. I brought you into the family. You could no longer be orphans again. You're now sons and daughters. And so much so I'll send the Spirit of adoption, so that you might know that you belong to God, even though I'm away. See, the gospel reveals all of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But like the original disciples, like we actually need a bit of God's fullness revealed to us. We need the, the, the beauty, the majesty, the completeness of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's not something that we sort of grasp immediately. Indeed, it's like kind of mysterious and complicated. But it's something like that Jesus is offering to us here. And not in a way so that we could merely sort of sit back and look at it. Like, like a breakthrough concept on the whiteboard. You finally solved like the organizational problems of your company, right? Or like a sunset where you're sitting on the beach and this painted across the sky in front of you. And you're just taking it in. It's not like that. It's not an idea. Jesus wants us to know a person. In fact, three persons in one God and begin to relate to this God deeply. Because the only way that you grow to maturity is to begin to relate deeply to the Trinity. And if our horizon is one thing, it is that we would make mature disciples of Jesus. People who grow up into the fullness of the faith and begin to know God deeply such that their lives are transformed completely. And so here we have all of God shown. But the reality is, most of us operate on some of God. So let's talk about that. You know, I'm married into jazz music, as long as we sort of keep the music theme. Um, that might actually be some of my favorite music around. Um, I didn't grow up on this stuff, um, but when I walked into the house at Laura's place or had dinner with her parents or even in the first years of our marriage, there was a record playing Ella Fitzgerald or Frank Sinatra or Louis Armstrong or Bing Crosby or Count Basie. And these names that I didn't know at all, but whose sounds I had heard sort of faintly, but now we're coming to, I was coming to know, they began to characterize our lives. It was like as we sat down to dinner, these tunes were on. And they had a way of settling us in, becoming the soundtrack and setting the mood, like opening the way for long dinners and extended conversations and laughter and this vivid storytelling that her dad is sort of known for. And uh, as, I, as I learned this kind of music, it became a part of me. And if I'm honest, when I hear it again, it sort of takes me back to the early years of my marriage. Um, perhaps you can think of a kind of music that takes you back somewhere as well. 
Well, music has that power. It has the power to mark and shape a moment, to create an environment. And like I said, it's almost as if music or culture becomes a kind of sunglasses through which we see, a kind of environment through which we breathe. And what I'd like to do is name a few of the cultural realities, some of the music that plays so that we might be aware of it when we approach the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, think about it this way. If we're not aware of the way in which the music of our moment characterizes how we see, then we'll begin to relate to God based on our present time rather than the powerful truth of his word. So, for example, we live in a current moment where emotions and feelings take this place in our society and that everything is subject to them. Now, the breakthroughs that have happened in the field of psychology and in therapy over the last half a century are astounding, and there's incredible gains to come from them. But if feelings play that role in the way that we approach the living God, what will happen is we will assume the gospel is mainly about our felt experience of peace. And if God cannot give us a momentary experience of peace, then we'll you know, have the lawnmower come through. No, uh, <laughs> if he can't give us that, then, then, then we'll say, this isn't worth it. This isn't worth it for me. You could even think that church has changed to approach that in some respect. Shaping an environment and an experience with the heightened emotion and experience of peace. That's become the design of many modern worship services. Or think about it this way. We live in a time where legal matters, forensic lens, holds an incredibly high standing. Like I cannot think of another time in history, another place in the world, where the kind of legal fine print and the kind of specialization in order to come into an agreement with another person is as detailed and as difficult to understand as it is. And if we're not careful to spot how legal of an emphasis we have as a culture, just to protect ourselves, then perhaps what we'll do is we'll approach the gospel as a purely legal transaction, thinking that all that Jesus has come is to somehow amend for my infractions to the law and render me not guilty and render me forgiven. Now, let's be clear. Jesus has on the cross, according to Colossians, nailed the record of debt that stood against us in all of our guilt and canceled it with any of its demands on us. That is true. But if the gospel is only legal transaction, have we become part of the family? What about the individual emphasis in our culture? What about the approach to just me and my Jesus? And what Jesus says to me is true for me, but what Jesus says to you is true for you. Well, how does that work? Because my Jesus, I think, is my sister's Jesus, is my brother's Jesus, is the family's Jesus. So how is it just going to be me and my Jesus when, in fact, he is the king of all of us? The individual emphasis what about production and progress? Think of how bent we are in our society on advancement, on producing, even on growing numbers. It's driven away where we say we need a response, we need a decision so that we can count it. But what about the offer of a relationship? How do we count that? And that sort of 
Ties, of course, connected to convenience, even simplicity in terms of the values of our present moment. They're in the music family, such that what we would like Christianity to be is a check the box so that I can walk away. But how many of your relationships work well in a check the box sort of format? I go to church, I pray my prayers, I read my Bible, and we're on my way. That's not the way that a good friendship works. Is that the way that a vibrant marriage works? Wouldn't those be better metaphors for relating to the triune God? And then, of course, we have Trinitarian reductions. We can easily confuse the Father as the Father of all, the God of all creation, and everyone is in the family. But in reality, God has said throughout the scriptures, Israel is my son. I have chosen a specific people to be my family. And they enter by faith and believing my promises. What about, it's just about Jesus. We have a way of saying Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And it's true. But if it's just Jesus with no helper Holy Spirit, with no father helping his children grow up, do we have all of Jesus or not? And then what about the Holy Spirit? There is, in some segments of the church, a hyperemphasis on the Spirit, such that the Spirit has actually gone sideways, been unlinked from the Son, been unhinged from the Father, such that what the Spirit says to me is what God is saying, rather than what the Spirit says to me is in collaboration with Scripture. It resonates with the community. It goes forward as the true helper leading me into understanding and truth rather than the helper who's helping me feel what I want to feel. It's not hard to see that the sad reality for many in the church and for many non-Christians as well is that we have been misinformed about what God is like. And in some ways, that's affected a kind of malformation about our own approach to the faith such that we're settling for some of God rather than all of God that's been offered. There's so much more. And in the words of Jesus, we get a clue and an invitation into a relationship with God himself, with the triune God, the maker of heaven and earth, the redeemer of the church. And so what I want to do is help you see a couple ways that you could grow in relating to the Trinity. All right? This series that we're going to do the next few weeks is called Horizon. It's because what I want to do is lift our eyes to where I believe God is taking us, where we believe God is taking our church and us individually. It's to say the destination, the goal, is for us to become mature followers of Jesus, ones in which we have a deep relationship with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's what we're aiming for. We want to become a people who know God deeply because we've learned to relate to the Trinity. And so here, here's a couple ways, and then we'll close. The first I would say as a marker or a measure of knowing God deeply is that you have firsthand knowledge. You have firsthand knowledge. I mean, I've joked for a while, secondhand knowledge is like my secondhand knowledge of playing in the NFL or playing in the MLS, because I know friends who have done both. Or 
to take it a step further. It's like knowing what it's like to birth a baby because I was there, secondhand knowledge. But I definitely didn't do that. I definitely didn't do that. But how many of us have secondhand knowledge about the faith? We know what others have experienced. But have we experienced it ourselves? Is there a firsthand knowing such that I know what it's like for the Father to affirm me? I know what it's like for his, to wrap his arms around me. I know what it's like for the Father to discipline me. I know what it's like for the Father to help me grow up, encourage me. I know what it's like for the Son to lead me, to redeem me, to heal me, to teach me. I know what it's like for the Spirit to convict me, to comfort me. I know what it's like to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. Do we have firsthand knowledge of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Number two, firsthand knowledge and then contemplative spirituality. One of the ways you know you're beginning to learn about God and know him deeply is you actually stop to think about it. Right? You stop in the busy pace of our life to contemplate your life. And as you do and start to reflect on, God, what are you doing? And what's going on in my life, my world? What happens is your story starts to, to nestle into God's story. And you begin to see life through God's big story and my story within it. And you get to hear him speak far more clearly because you stop to ask, what are you saying to me? Contemplative spirituality is crucial to relate in God deeply. Number three are what I'd call sacred habits. Sacred habits. Sacred habits are literally the dance. They're the dance of your spiritual joy. You have learned what it's like to step out on the dance floor with the triune God so that you know how to relate, that you have been caught up into that movement of connection and love and joy, and you know that it means you need this kind of prayer time. You know that it means maybe you need this kind of reading plan. You know that it means you need this consistent friend in your life. You know that it means you need to take a walk by yourself a couple times a week just to ponder and meet with the Lord. You know how to dance and get caught up in the joy of that blessed community to where you hear the invitation of the Trinity. Walk with me. And then number four, unity. One of the ways you know that you have started to relate to God deeply is because you have caught the ability for unity. Meaning, when you look at the Trinity, you have this incredible diversity. Three persons, one being, different roles, different persons, incredible collaboration and unity together. It's, if, if you want a case for how different people can actually function together in a healthy way, it's right there in the Godhead, right? Like when you say, hey, we need to be separate with the people that are like us, that's just not true at all because the very being of God is contrary to that. But I can tell you one thing, that you'll rarely find diversity without maturity. Because it's far easier and far more immature to be with those who are like us in thought and speech and manner of acting, in political opinions, convictions, in approach spiritually. So if you want to reflect the Trinity, you have to begin to embrace diversity so that you can actually give a proper reflection of God to the world. And that will happen as you anchor 
your ability to relate to others different than you in the very nature of God himself. And the funny thing is, you might learn to relate to different persons of God, like the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you know what you'll do as you do that? You'll actually practice relating well to different people, which might have a transferring effect for your ability to relate well to different people around you. Unity and diversity. First-hand knowledge, contemplative spirituality, sacred habits, and unity. Markers that you have begun to walk with God deeply and that you are starting to grasp and relate to all of God. And so listen, the good news is that we have in Jesus not just the teaching of this, but we have the model. We have him as our hope. The one who said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. You can follow me and pattern your life after me. And in fact, because the gospel is something God has done for you, not just said you have to do, Jesus himself has accomplished everything needed, taken away all possible barriers for you to relate to God himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is our hope. He is our path. So let's follow him in to fullness of life, church. Amen. Jesus, we pray that you would build up this church toward maturity and that you would use us You would use us in one another, encouraging, challenging, helping us be formed deeply in the gospel so that we might live fully for you, Jesus. We want to know you, God. And we want want to be satisfied with you. Just like Philip said, it's enough. You are enough. Our hope is in you. And we acknowledge that at times we've struggled to know how to relate to you. So teach us, Jesus, to walk in your ways so that we might gain a close connection to the Father, an ever-present link to the Son, and the constant leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It's for your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.